0: The Lord reigns. That's how Psalm 97 opens. It's true. He reigns. He always has been reigning. And He always will be reigning. But what does that mean for you? Does that, that truth, that the Lord is reigning on His throne, carrying out His will in this world, does that, does that impact your day today? Perhaps it does. I mean, you're here in church, you know, He calls us to gather, to worship with His people. Does that impact your tomorrow? What what will that mean for your day tomorrow? How will the truth that the Lord reigns shape and fashion your day tomorrow? What does it mean for when you get up? What what does it mean for when you eat breakfast? Does it mean that you'll give Him praise and thanks? What does the truth the Lord reigns mean for your life? not just today, but each and every day that He gives you here on this earth, and that great and final last day in which He will come and make His reign known visibly to this world. Well, this is what we're thinking about this morning as we study Psalm 97, the the rule and reign of the Lord. We're continuing our study uh, of six psalms with Psalm 97. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and... Open your Bibles or turn on your Bibles, if you have one of those things. Uh, turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to um, Psalm 97. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, which aren't battery-powered, um, they're just normal pages, uh, it's on page 499. Toward the bottom, I think, of page 499. Uh, these six Psalms that we're uh, thinking about in our study of the Psalms, um, they tell us much about God about who He is, about how He is to be worshipped, but they also give us insights into the unfolding storyline of the Bible. Psalm 97 puts its finger on the pulse of one of the main themes of the Bible in that it declares God's reign over all of the earth, earth and over all of the peoples of the earth. And without recognizing this truth, the truth that God reigns, frankly, the Bible just doesn't make sense. And... And without recognizing this truth in our own lives, that God reigns over all things, and therefore us, uh, frankly, we will have trouble making sense of our lives. If we do not recognize God as the sovereign King of the universe, who reigns over all things, the things that take place in this world and in our lives will make little sense. Psalm 97 reminds us of the fundamental reality of the reign of God. While at the same time, showing us two different reactions to this reality. We're going to consider Psalm 97 in three sections under three headings. Two edicts, two ends, and two exhortations. So yes, in a three-point sermon, I'm saying there are two edicts, two ends, and two exhortations in this psalm. It's really a six-point sermon moved into three, but you'll thank me, I'm sure, at the end of the service, just having heard a three-point sermon instead of a six-point sermon. Uh, so, three, three points. Let's begin with our first point, Two edicts, which is just another word for a proclamation or a declaration. Two edicts. Uh, read Psalm 97, verses 1 to 6 with me. Psalm 97, verses 1 to 6. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all Around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. And that all the peoples see His glory. The the two edicts of this set of verses come right at the beginning and the end. The first is that the Lord reigns. That comes from the psalmist. The second is there in verse 6, and it's the Lord's righteousness. This is what the heavens proclaim. It's what they declare. It's the edict that they offer. And those are the two edicts of these verses. And let's take a closer look. Uh, at these declarations now. Psalm 97 picks up right where Psalm 96 left off with a focus on the reign of the Lord. The conclusion of Psalm 96 focused in on a particular aspect of the Lord's reign, namely His righteous judgment. The first six verses of Psalm 97 mainly consider the reaction and response of the earth to the reign of the Lord and His coming judgment. Uh, the psalmist in verse 1 declares that the Lord reigns and he invites the earth to rejoice and the coastlands to be glad. And much like Psalm 96, the opening of Psalm 97 has the universal worship of the Lord in view. Gladness and joy at the reign of the Lord are to extend to the very ends of the earth. Uh, the, the phrase there, the many coastlands, those are meant to bring to mind the many islands which, which populate the very ends of the earth the furthest places on the globe. And this would remind those who first read and sang this psalm, they were to think of these places far, far away, rejoicing in Yahweh's reign. As we thought about last week, the Lord's special love toward the people of Israel was always meant to give hope to the people of the earth that they too might know His saving love. It feels though as there's a sharp transition between verses 1 and 2, doesn't it? Suddenly the joy and gladness of the world are exchanged for darkness, justice, for fire, for fear and trembling. It's a scene reminiscent of what took place on Mount Sinai just after the Lord spoke the Ten Commandments to Israel. So keeping one finger here in Psalm 96, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verses uh, 18 to 21. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage on page 61. I want us to take just a brief look at this scene. Psalm 97, uh, verses 2 through 6, they, they mention clouds and thick darkness and lightning and mountains trembling and melting and, and fear. And listen to how this is described in Exodus. Listen to how God is described on Mount Sinai just after giving the Ten Commandments. So Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 to 21. This is what, um, what Moses records. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now, because you kept your finger there, turn back to Psalm 97. As we turn back to Psalm 97, we can see that the author is picking up on the images of the scene in Exodus 20. The people of Israel were mercifully shielded from the Lord's holy character by the clouds. After all, they were Unholy, And to come into direct contact with the Lord's holy character would mean certain death for them. And as we think of Psalm 97 and its recollection of the giving of the law in Exodus 20, what should God's law make us think of? It should make us think of His righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne because He is righteous and just. This scene in Psalm 97 is... One of the Lord judging the world in His righteousness or by the standard of His righteousness. You know, the prophet Joel spoke of this day when the Lord would judge the earth in His righteousness. He spoke of the the dreaded day of the Lord in Joel chapter 2, verse 2. He said that it was a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And Joel would go on to say in the next verse, in Joel chapter 2, verse 3, that fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. And what do we see in Psalm 97 verse 3? We see fire devouring the adversaries of the Lord. No one escapes. In the words of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. The frightful images of God's judgment and self-revelation continue there in verses 4 and 5. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm both amazed and terrified by lightning. Uh, one of the things that my wife thinks that I'm crazy for doing is that when we have a, a big storm in the area, I love to go to the biggest window in the house to open the curtains and just kind of watch it. And my wife thinks I'm crazy for this. Maybe I am. Um, but when a, you know, a lightning bolt strikes nearby the house and there's a loud crack, I kind of, you know, whoa, okay. kind of step back in fear, really. There's an amazing amount of power in a bolt of lightning that should set us back. And this is how the Lord is described, isn't it? What does the psalmist say? He says, The Lord's lightnings light up the world and the earth sees and trembles. All of the images of lightning that I looked at this past week in the Old Testament are associated with judgment or judging, expressing righteousness. Uh, some passages even speak of the Lord using lightning-like arrows to strike His enemies. It's a, it's a frightening picture. And what, what should be said about the image of mountains melting like wax before the Lord? Not only is this an image of an apparent dissolving of the created order, but it occurs with relative ease, doesn't it? Anyone who's ever lit a birthday candle knows that you've got to sing happy birthday right away. Otherwise, the wax is going to get all over the cake. And you've got to blow them out right away, right? When fire comes into contact, close contact with the wax, it's got no chance. It melts right away. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. You know, in reflecting on the coming judgment, the Apostle Peter said something similar in 2 Peter 3, verse 12. He said that on the coming day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the heavens will be set on fire and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. The coming day of the Lord, the coming judgment will be a cosmic and universal event. Not only will God judge the peoples of this earth, but He will renew through fire the entire created order so that the new heavens and the new earth may be the home of God's redeemed people for all eternity. All of this. Everything that's described in verses 2-5 to remind us that God truly is the Lord of all the earth. And this should be obvious. It should be obvious not only by the scope of His coming and worldwide judgment, but also by the mere observance of the created order as we presently see it. That's why the psalmist says there in verse 6, the heavens proclaim His righteousness. They're telling us something. And the peoples, all the peoples see His glory. This is a simple statement, saying that the the created order shows us God's power and His existence and His reign. It's a simple statement. It's one that's similar to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. There, Paul said this, For what can be known about God is, is plain to them. They can see it, Paul says. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. That's what Paul said. While verses 2 through 5 focus in on the day of judgment, while they focus in on a day that is to come, the psalmist reminds his readers that today there is evidence that the Lord reigns. The heavens proclaim. His righteousness they declare this is their edict to us and all the peoples see his glory. How we live today is not disconnected from our joy or our shame on the last day. The truth is is that God exists and we will either join with the heavens in proclaiming his righteousness and declare his glory or we will willfully reject him. Everything in our lives is either an affirmation of God's existence and glory and right to reign over our lives, or it is a rejection of God's existence and glory and right to reign over our lives. Our affirmation of God's reign through faith or our rejection of God's reign through unbelief is connected to our future. And the psalmist tells us in verses 7 to 9, that when the Lord comes to judge, when God reveals his righteousness and justice, we will either be put to shame or we will be filled with joy. So let's turn now and consider this more closely. This is our second point that we want to consider. Two ends, two ends. And as we do, read verses 7 to 9 with me. Psalm 97, verses 7 to 9. All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship Him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. On the last day, when the Lord's throne is fully and finally revealed in righteousness and justice... There will be two, and only two responses, or or more properly, ends. Shame or joy. The the difference between those who experience shame and those who experience joy on the day that the Lord comes in judgment is whether or not they have recognized and joyfully received the reign of the Lord in their lives. Have you you recognized and received the reign of the Lord in your life? But the clearest way that you can know whether or not you have received the reign of the Lord in your life is through seeing who you worship. The psalmist in verse 7 points out that when the Lord comes in judgment, all the wor- all worshipers of images are put to shame. He explains what he means by, by worshipers of images uh, when he speaks about those who make their boasts in worthless idols. You know, in the day and age when this psalm was first written, the nations around Israel worshipped false gods. They bowed down to idols that they made with their own hands. They they made these idols. They put them up on shelves or various places, and then they bowed down to these things that they had just made. When you when you think about it like that, it just it just doesn't make sense, does it? That you know the prophet Isaiah address the futility of this endeavor in Isaiah chapter 44. It's a, it's a remarkable chapter, and I would encourage you to go, go read it uh, later on. He describes in detail how an idol is fashioned. He speaks of how you know, there's a log, and then it's cut in two. It's cut in half, and then half of the log is used for the fire to warm a person's home. And the other half is used to carve an idol. There's something utterly blinding about sin and false worship. Like this. Sin and false worship is irrational. Those who worship worthless idols don't ask themselves such basic questions like this What can this block of wood, which I've carved with my own hands, do for me? How can something empty fill me up? The reality is that this still happens in the world today. People all around the world today fashion idols with their own hands. And they worship them. They worship false gods and idols that they've made with their their very own hands. They worship the things that they have created. You you can find them in shrines and temples all over the world. But you can also find them right in front of you. People still worship blocks of wood today. You know, people bow down before a block of wood that happens to be in the shape of a desk. We know this. People worship their... Jobs. It's no surprise to us. We see people worshipping their jobs. They shape their whole lives around it. Everything revolves around this job and what they're going to get out of it. And sometimes, we might even be some of those people. People bow down before a block of wood that happens to have been thinly sliced into what we call money. And, and we know this. People worship money today everything in their life revolves around money spending money making money receiving more of it using it to their own ends and their own satisfaction because they they want something from it they want to be satisfied by something they think that it will bring them and sometimes we might be those people too people bow down before many blocks of wood fashioned into the shape of a home you know, many many things will revolve around this home and beautifying the home and making it, you know, express their their worth and their dignity. Trying to show, you know, their their character and their worth off to others. And and sometimes we might even be those people who worship our homes and many other things too, really. You you might think to yourself, you sure, Mike. Um, you know, I get it. We're, we're idol worshipers, but I'm very different from those ancient people. You know, surrounding Israel, very different. That was you know, a very different thing. Well, I'm I'm here to say, no, you're not, and neither am I. <laughs> no, we're we're just like them. Just think think about it. They were carving an idol because they wanted something from that idol. They were bowing down before it, shaping their lives around it because. They wanted something. It was their will which was driving their worship. And that is totally and completely different from the idols that we make in our own hearts and lives today? I don't think so. Just like the ancients, we fashion idols, the idols that we want to worship today because we want something from them. We're substituting things for God. Because we would rather have our own gods who will give us what we want than have the God who is and gives us what He wants. It's our will versus His. Instead of saying, Thy will be done, we make idols so that we can say, My will be done. Children, I think that you should think about this too. Children, what does your heart desire most? Popularity, uh, a good physical appearance, uh, athletic ability, uh, less embarrassing parents—maybe. You know what is it that your heart desires most? Is there something that you think would would make your life so much better if you could just have it? If I just had this one thing, it would just change my life radically. Or maybe have a little more of it. I, I want to give you a little hint about idols they're never satisfied and you'll never be satisfied by them. You know, think about it. They're empty. What can they give you? Let me encourage you to to talk to your parents about how to know if something in your life is an idol. That you'll sin. That you will disregard God and His will and His way so that you can have that thing. You know, that would be a, a challenging conversation to have. But I think a good one, and I hope an encouraging one, as your parents, I hope, will teach you and explain to you how the Lord Jesus Christ is more satisfying than any idol, any worthless idol that this world has to offer. That would be a good conversation to have with your parents this afternoon or this evening. The reality is that we're all idol worshipers, and we're all creators of idols in our hearts. An old and wise theologian once said that the human heart is an idol factory. He was right. And it's striking to think about this when Psalm 97 has the scene of the Ten Commandments set as its backdrop. What are the first two commandments? Thou shalt have no other gods but me, before no idol bow thy knee. The worshipers of verse 7 have clearly violated at least the first two of the Ten Commandments, and for their sin they will be put to shame. The empty idols have nothing, nothing to offer the people who worship them. If they, the idols, could give anything to anyone, they would give their worship to the one true God. But since they're worthless, the closing admonition of verse 7 worship him, all you gods. It's simply an ironic kind of parting shot, which only further reveals the worthlessness of worshiping them. On the last day, the futility of this kind of worship will be exposed, and those who worship false idols will be put to shame. And the psalmist is not talking about a kind of shame in which you're embarrassed and feel silly about what you've done. It's it's not like uh, those who worshiped idols on the last day will say, oh dear me, I can't believe that I did that. That that was just, that was silly of me. No, that's not the kind of shame that the um, psalmist is talking about. The psalmist is not talking about the kind of shame that you feel when you just want to run and hide from an embarrassing momentary situation. The shame that the psalmist is speaking about is far more severe. It is a shame from which people cannot escape. It is an eternal revealing of the futility of their false worship. And it is accompanied by an eternal contempt of God. In the words of Daniel chapter 12 verse 2, those who worshipped false gods will awake to shame and everlasting contempt. It is a shame that has been reserved forever for them, as Jude 13 says. In contrast to the unending shame which will mark those who worship worthless idols, the people of God, those who have worshipped the one true God will be marked with joy. God's people are glad. They rejoice because of God's judgments. The, the Lord's judgments likely refer here to, to what the Lord has done to save and rescue His people. Perhaps the psalmist has in mind the, the great works of the Lord in Egypt and the Exodus or other powerful acts of God. Whatever the case may be, the people of God rejoice because of what God has done for them in the past. And and they are, um, and on this basis, on, on, the, on the basis of what God has done for them in the past, they are confident and hopeful for the future the people of God are confident that God's great works in the past reveal his superiority over all and that he will keep his promises to them this is why he says uh, this is why they say in verse 9 you O Lord are most high over all the earth you are exalted far above all gods the gods of Egypt they were no match for Yahweh and because of this the people of God rejoiced the gods of Canaan or no match for Yahweh. Because of this, the people of God rejoice. No false gods are a match for the one true God. And because of this, the people of God rejoice. Because of this, the people of God know that on the day of judgment, they will not be put to shame. The psalmist is saying that God's great past acts assure them of their joy in the future on the great day of the Lord. They know that their end is one of joy. Friends, do you know your end? Do you know whether or not your end will be one of shame or one of joy? If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not a worshiper of the one true God, then I want to invite you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. All who come to Jesus Christ in faith will not be put to shame. They will not be cast out from God. They will be welcomed into the eternal joy of heaven. But you must come to Him. And that means you must leave behind the worship of all things that are worthless. We were created to exalt God and God alone. He alone is worthy of our worship. But just like our first parents, just like Adam and Eve, we've sought to exalt ourselves and other people and things which are not God. And this is what the Bible calls sin. And we've all sinned. Everyone in this room is a sinner and in need of God's grace. The Bible calls this rebellion against God's sin, this living our own way, worshiping ourselves in worthless idols. And because we've all sinned against the eternal and just God, we're all in danger of facing His just and righteous, eternal wrath against our sins forever in hell. But the good news of the Bible is that God is the God of salvation. He redeems sinners like you and me. He saves us. He acts for people like us. He has acted for people like us. He did this by sending His one and only Son, His most beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ came to live the life that we have not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God. He never turned from God to worship Himself or any other created thing. He never fashioned a worthless idol with His hands or in His heart. He never sinned. And yet, He gave His life on the cross to bear the punishment and eternal wrath of God for the sins of all of those who would ever turned from their sin and put their faith in Him. And three days after His death, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And in His resurrection, God proved to us yet again that Jesus Christ alone is worthy of our worship. So friends, I urge you to come to Jesus Christ in faith and be saved. Turn from offering your worship to worthless idols to the one who is truly worthy of worship. Turn from your sins and turn to Jesus. Believe that He lived for you, that He died for you, that He was raised for you. Friend, I I want you to come to know Him in faith today. And if you want to know more about what it means for Jesus to rule and reign in your life each and every day, then please do come and find me at the door after the service or talk with a friend or family member that you came with this morning. There's there's nothing more important you can think about than what it means for Jesus Christ to reign in your life today. God alone is worthy of worship. And our worship of Him or of worthless idols will determine whether or not we will know eternal shame or eternal joy. Now having considered the two edicts and the two ends of Psalm 97, let's now turn and consider the two exhortations that come at the end of Psalm 97. This is our third point, two exhortations. Read Psalm 97, verses 10 to 12 now. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of His saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, and give thanks to His holy name. The two exhortations in these verses uh, are hate evil right there in verse 10 and then rejoice in verse 12. Let's take a, a closer look at these two exhortations now. After reflecting on the judgment of the Lord and on the shame of those who worship the worthless idols and the joy of those who worship the one true God, the psalmist then exhorts the people of God to persevere in faith. And this is something that we need to recognize. Almost every time... That God's holy character and righteousness, righteous judgment are spoken about in the scriptures. An ethical exhortation is attached to it. So here in Psalm 97 we have a description of God's glorious and awesome judgment. And it's tied to this exhortation to hate evil. Every single one of the scripture passages that I mentioned earlier in connection with verses 2 and 5, Exodus 20, Joel 2, and um, 2 Peter 3. All of those passages about God's judgment and judging and His righteousness, all of them also contain an ethical exhortation in connection with describing God's righteousness. So in Exodus 20, Moses exhorted the people not to sin and not to give themselves to idols. In Joel chapter 2, the people of Israel were invited to repent and to return to the Lord. In 2 Peter Chapter 3, the Apostle Peter encouraged believers to live godly and holy lives in view of God's righteous and coming judgment. Do you see how the prospect of God's judgment in a future day has implications for today? We who love the Lord and look forward to His coming ought to hate evil. We ought to hate evil. But, But what does that mean? What does it mean to hate evil? What is evil and who gets to decide? What is evil and what is good? Perhaps the God who sits on the throne with a foundation of righteousness and justice? Yes, God determines what is good and what is evil. The the Constitution of the United States or any other nation does not determine what is good or evil. A favorite political figure does not determine what is good or evil. The winds of the culture do not determine what is good or evil philosophers, psychologists, academics, or anyone else for that matter, do not determine what is good or evil. That privilege and duty belongs to God and God alone. God tells us in his word, the Bible, what is good and what is evil. All that is contrary to him and his character and his commands is evil. And to hate what is truly evil, we must hate the things that God hates. We must take His side against sin and wickedness. We must take His side against unrighteousness and injustice. And we most often think about events and happenings in the world around us. But we must not forget that there is still indwelling sin in our own hearts. And with God, we must hate that evil too. Yes, we must hate the evil that's even in our own hearts. And not only must we hate evil, but we must also remove it from our lives. How else will our true disgust of evil be made manifest? We must turn away from sin, and by God's grace, seek to leave it behind. This is what the Bible calls repentance, and we can only truly repent with God's help, and we must repent. We must hate evil, but there's also a positive aspect of this command to hate evil. For With the hatred of evil, there must also be a love of good. There must be a love of God, and a love for the things that He loves. This, too, is determined by God. Whatever is good, whatever is lovely, whatever is noble and pure, God determines and reveals in His Word. A love for God, and the things that God loves, again, only comes by His grace. But this is what... His coming judgment ought to mean for our lives. This is what His reign ought to mean in our lives, each and every day. That we should hate evil and love good. We should hate the things that the Lord hates and love the things that the Lord loves. I wonder if you noticed the gracious promise of the psalmist there in verse 10. He says, The Lord preserves the lives of His saints, He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. This is an incredibly encouraging promise. And yet, when we think about the events in in our world, in our our days, we consider the the events in this world, we can't can't help but feel something of a disconnect when we read this promise. I mean, what would our brothers and sisters in Christ who live in Iraq think of this promise? How, How would they think about this? How would they who are daily being persecuted and killed think about this promise? How would our brothers and sisters in China and India and Yemen and Nigeria and Indonesia and so many other places around the world think about this promise? Has God kept this promise? Is He preserving the lives of His saints? Is He delivering them from the hand of the wicked? How should we think about this? Well, first, we must remember the backdrop of this psalm is a scene of judgment and final judgment at that. The Lord will certainly preserve the eternal life of His saints. The wicked can only kill the body, but they cannot cast the soul into hell. They do not have that power. All believers can know that though they may face persecution and death, God will be true to His promise of eternal life in heaven for His people. He has and will continue to preserve the lives of his saints and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And there is a particular judgment of God, to use the words, uh, to use the language of verse 8, that gives us hope that God will be true to his promise and so preserve our lives too. As I said earlier, God's judgments in verse 8 refer to his great saving acts for his people, his past saving acts in particular. And what is the past saving act that we as Christians look to for our hope? Is it not the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Didn't God preserve his life? Did God abandon him to the grave? No. No. David prophesied that God would not let his Messiah be abandoned to the grave or let his body see corruption. And the Apostle Peter made that connection in Acts chapter 2. And he said, no, God did not abandon Jesus to the grave. He raised Him from the grave. He raised Jesus from the grave. And though the hands of wicked men put Jesus to death, God delivered Jesus from the hands of wicked men and preserved His life by raising Him from the grave. That's the judgment of God that we look to for our hope in the future. Because Jesus has been raised, then we who believe can be sure that we too will be raised from the grave on the last day and great day of judgment. This is how God will preserve the lives of those who believe. This is how we as Christians should read the promise of verse 10. Though the wicked may slay me, yet shall I live. For the God who raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the grave shall also raise my body from the grave too. The wicked may take my earthly life, but they cannot take my eternal life that has been guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And no wonder... In verse 11, we read, Light, light is sown for the righteous, and joy for the upright in heart. And here we have moved from, in the psalm from clouds and thick darkness and gloom and judgment to light and joy. Judgment and darkness and shame await all those opposed to God. But light and joy await those who love the Lord. That's the image that we're actually given in the book of Revelation when the judgments of God against the ungodly are being unveiled in the book of Revelation, nothing but thick darkness is present for them. But when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, when the people of God are gathered with Christ the Lamb, what did John say? John in Revelation chapter 21, verse 23 to 25 said this. Listen how John speaks about the light in heaven. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there no clouds no thick darkness in heaven for the people of God there will be no judgment for us there will only be light and joy for us with our Savior. And there will only be light for us because Jesus took the darkness for us. Jesus took the judgment for us. Do you remember what happened when he died on the cross? When what descended upon the land when Jesus Christ died on the cross? Here's what Matthew said in Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, My God, My God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness covered the land and judgment covered Jesus. Jesus died under the cover of darkness because he died under God's judgment for us. He dispelled the darkness for us so that we might live in the glorious light of heaven. So in view of this good news, what should the people of God do? Well, verse 12 gives us a pretty good direction. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. And this is where I want us to conclude. I want us to conclude by by reflecting on the final exhortation of Psalm 97, to rejoice in God and give thanks to God. These two exhortations to rejoice and give thanks are really just one single exhortation. To rejoice in the Lord is to rejoice in the one whose name is holy. And real thanks is marked by humble, heartfelt joy. Joy and thanks to God are fitting responses to the truth of this psalm. Joy and thanks are how we ought to live under the reign of the Lord. They're fitting because all joy in God and thanks to God honor God as the one who reigns. Joy and thanks recognize God's righteousness and justice and see His glory as supreme. Joy in God and thanks to God are fitting because they exalt God as great and high above all gods. Joy in God and thanks to God are fitting because in His unfathomable kindness He made us righteous in Jesus Christ. On the last day the people of God will not stand before His throne in shame or in silence but with joyful shouts of thanks for the work of Jesus Christ. And that's how we should live each and every day under the reign of the Lord. Let's pray together.